Auto Line this week is underwritten in part by... In this epic battle of fuel efficiency and endurance, we're here to see which hybrid has the best MPG. That's the essence of a hybrid soul. But is there more to it? The Hybrid Game MPG Challenge. And now, here is your host, John McElroy. I want to thank all of you for having joined us on AutoLine this week, where the discussion is going to be all about autonomous cars, cars that can drive themselves. Is this technology really going to work? And if so, when might we see it? And to get answers to those questions, I've got three experts with us today, including Gary Silberg, a partner who runs the National Automotive Industry Group at KPMG, Christian Schumacher, the advanced driver systems person at uh, Continental North America, and Annie Lean, a senior engineer with the Electronic Research Lab, which is shared by Audi, the Volkswagen Group, and other brands within the Volkswagen Group. want to thank you all for being here on AutoLine this week. Annie, let's start with you. What is this technology? I mean, how the heck do you make a car drive all by itself and do it safely? So um, I'd like to give the analogy of a human being when I'm asked this question. Um, so as a human, we have eyes. We see the environment. The car's the same way. You have sensors. It could be a camera. It could be ultrasound. It could be um, lasers. It could be radars. And those are the eyes of the car. And the eyes see the environment. And then, and then like a human, the car has to process this information and has to analyze and understand it. That's where the software comes in. We have good engineers to do that. Um, and then once you process the information and understand the environment, then the decisions have to be made, just like we do. Our brain makes a decision very instantaneously what to do about this information. Are we going to steer? Are we going to brake? Are we going to accelerate? And messages are then relayed over to the vehicle controls, which are the actual um, braking, etc. And then an action is taken place, which is what, exactly what humans do. We then move, or do whatever, we walk, we stop. And so the car is the exact same way. And that's the real good overview, high-level analogy that I like to use to explain. Christian, that would suggest that there's going to be a whole lot more sensors on cars. Are we going to see them bristling with antennas and cameras and that sort of thing? Or what's this going to look like? Um, not necessarily. We believe at Continental that uh, most of the sensors are already existing today. You already have them out there. If you look at cars currently equipped with adaptive cruise control or lane departure warning cameras, radar sensors, LiDAR sensors, or ultrasonic sensors, whatever you would like to choose. But these sensors are already out today. And now we have to just see that we network this information very similar to what Annie was saying, like a human being, that we can use this, utilize it, create kind of a 360-degree surround vision of the car, and then use that for automated driving. It is definitely a partial approach or step-by-step -step approach. Um, there might be partial automated driving. We call it in the industry more like automated driving, not necessarily autonomous driving. That is the uh, long-term approach. But there might be partial automated driving going over to potentially highly automated and then fully automated driving. But as I said, it's a step-by-step -step approach. But the pieces that we need for that are already mostly available today. 
Gary, you did a, a white paper at KPMG where you really dove into this topic. What's your general conclusion? Is this going to work? Is this going to happen? Well, I would, I would say that one of the most important points that we, we talked about in the white paper is we fundamentally believe people actually want this and would be willing to pay for it. And one of the epiphanies for me when we did our research was actually the younger generation, like my kids, I kind of get that, that they might want this. But it's actually older people. If you think about that for a moment, if you're as defined by uh, the government, 66 and older, older people want to have mobility throughout their lives. And it's quite a dramatic event when you take the keys away from a parent, okay, or they lose their mobility. And what we found when we talked to older people is that if they could have this mobility through in their 80s, 90s, and God willing, their hundreds, they would want it and they would pay for it. And, and I think when you, when you follow that logic of the economics of older people who, by the way, have disposable income, right, and they really do not want to lose their mobility, and you back that up and you look at baby boomers, okay, the, the generation that really has this passion for driving, and they think about it a little bit. And when we talked to these baby boomers, I thought it was quite fascinating, is the baby boomers at first like, well, I have this passion for driving, um, and then they talked about, but you're right, I would never want to take the keys away from my parents, right? No. But then their brain starts clicking, and they realize in 10, 15 years, that's me. <laughs> and nobody's taking my keys away from me. So I really fundamentally believe, and in the white paper we talk about it, that the economics, people will want this technology and be willing to pay for it. And I think, as Christian just said, and Annie, is, is that we've got the technology now. It's, it's now about really implementing it and making it happen. Annie, do you see that same sort of thing, that older people will buy into this technology? I mean, I would think one of the things that they would look at it as is with a lot of skepticism. How do you get over the public perception, or is that not an issue? Uh, I agree, actually. I agree with Gary that, that the older people do want it. And actually, um, we, we've done a study on driver assistance systems, not autonomous technology, but we've done studies on driver assistance systems, and, and then we will continue on with autonomous technologies. And we've noticed that, of course, the younger generation is very excited, very, very excited because it's new, it's hip, it's innovative. And the middle generation is a little bit skeptical, but they're interested. And the older generation is, is saying, give it to me now. <laughs> so it really is um, um, something that's attractive to the older generation. But I think that's recent because two years ago, I think it was definitely very different. They were more skeptical than they are today. Christian, Continental, in my opinion, or my viewpoint, seems to be at the lead of this technology amongst automotive suppliers. Is this the same thing that you find, is that more people are becoming interested, more companies are becoming interested in this technology? It is definitely the case. Uh, if you're looking just uh, over the last year, seeing how many people now getting interested in this technology, but from all sides, it's in the automotive side, OEMs, suppliers, but outside of automotive as well. So it's, it's a huge booming market and there are a lot of benefits as we just discussed already. One of them definitely is uh, mobility. There's no, no question about it. The other one that we at Continental see very important is, is safety here. And we still believe that far too many people are getting killed on roads, on accidents. And we are a strong believer that this technology um, brings us uh, to much less fatalities long term. But even midterm, with, as I said, the extension of advanced driver assistance systems towards 
automated driving towards autonomous driving. In, in other words, what you're, I know Continental's working on uh, a traffic jam assist. So it's not full autonomy, but when you get into a traffic jam, you set the cruise control, and now the car will slow up, slow down, and do some of the steering automatically. Yes. That is correct. That is one of the features that we are currently internally working on. We know, obviously, that uh, a lot of the OEMs are working on this feature. We see this feature as the first step uh, towards autonomous driving out there in the field uh, very soon from our perspective. Uh, this is a feature that works more on slower speeds, potentially below 30 miles per hour. But it's a typical situation, a traffic jam. And it, it, again, it attacks two areas. One is the comfort areas, because we all know uh, it doesn't matter which car you're driving. You hate it if you're in a traffic jam for 10 minutes. Right. Even, in a, <laughs> Even in a Ferrari. <laughs> but on the other side, obviously, we're looking at the safety aspect as well, because a lot of people in this situation suddenly get distracted. Because it's a very easy task to get distracted in this kind of scenario. You do something repeatedly always the same in a traffic jam. You're not paying attention, and immediately there's the accident. And that's why we believe this is the best approach, as, as I mentioned before, by the step-by-step -step, step -step approach towards autonomous driving as a feature that stays first in a slower speed range just to be more controllable. It's a liability issue. It's other issues that are yeah. influencing this. But we see that as a first step. Yes. It's interesting. I was just yeah, going to jump go. in. It's part of our white paper. We talked to premium brand drivers, and uh, we asked the questions. For example, I, I, I know, Andy, you're originally from... Los Angeles, I think, but you know, if you're in the 405, we asked many people uh, in Orange County, and we said premium brand drivers only. We said, okay, if you're in if if you're in Orange County, and we said we could get you to Santa Monica on the 405 in 33.5 minutes, whatever the number is, in a self-driving car, would you be willing to give up your premium brand mm -hmm. car? And just like Christian said, they all like yes, and uh, it was it was it was quite an interesting interesting data point because we thought at least initially, that the premium brand drivers would be reluctant to give over you know, the, the actual driving of the vehicle, but not, not in that scenario, not at all in that scenario. No one likes to be on the highway. Like Christian says, who, I have never met who anybody who loves stop-and-go traffic. Nowhere in the world. Nowhere in the world. But Christian raised a, a, a good point, and I'll throw it out to you other two. How many lives could we save if we get to this, you know, in a step-by-step -step process, more and more car-to-car -car communication, more and more autonomous driving where maybe we don't have accidents. Does anyone have a number of how many lives could be saved? I don't know the actual number of deaths per year, but it, I know it's in the, I think, 20,000. Well, well, no, right now oh. in the United States, 32,000 people are killed every year, and about a million are injured. And the, the, uh, one of the comments I was going to make about the economics of this, again, why there's a powerful self-interest, and certainly this is a big area in the safety, it costs between hospital visits, doctor visits, death, all the things. I think it's close to $400 billion a year. I mean, it's enormous, the cost of these type of accidents. And uh, the self-interest of not only, at least what we believe, is the, the market for people to want it to pay for it, but think about the self-interest of governments. They're like, okay less accidents, the, the maintenance associated with this. There's a lot of powerful influences from other outside the market side that really have a self-interest, and this being one big area. Wow, $400 billion. I could do a lot with that. Yeah. And the insurance companies, are, I think, are interested as well, because if accidents redu are reduced, insurance claims are reduced. They should. Therefore, they should go down. Well, in that's fact, that's one of the ways to pay for this technology, no? Reduce your insurance that's premiums that's and put that into... That's how you can help at the end of the, the end consumer to pay for this technology. Right. Because if somebody sees it as an option package, hopefully in the future, 
it is standard on the cars, but we'll have to see. It will start with an option package. But obviously, if you see the price tag and then get from your insurance a reduced bill, and you see after two years, potentially, you have the money out of your pocket. This is, again, back into your pocket, basically, then everybody would buy it. It's, it's a no-brainer. And it's interesting on the insurance side, because if you track uh, the frequency of, of, of accidents, and it's highly correlated to the miles driven, and typically, as during the recession, as miles driven, you would think the frequency would go down. But actual studies, is, and, I, and I have a hypothesis, I, you guys probably have a better point of view on this, but it actually didn't go down as much as it has historically. And if you look in the most recent years, my hypothesis has been because drivers are distracted. Despite the fact that people are driving less, now they're texting, they're doing various other things in the car, on the phone, et cetera, which is increasing the frequency of accidents. Well, I don't know. We've, we've seen a dramatic, the, the biggest drop in traffic fatalities in the last five years that I've ever seen in my entire career. Not, of not fatalities, but, but frequency of actual Of accidents. accidents. Okay, accidents. gotcha. Because yeah, of the safety in the vehicle, we've, we've come a long way. We now. have. But, but, and, and the reason I bring that point up is because this is another impetus for why the regulators would be interested is because more people are actually having accidents. Right. Annie, when you, when you guys do your market research on this, uh, how willing are consumers to buy it and how much would they pay? Okay, so the question I wouldn't be able to answer is how much they're willing to pay. That's, that's to be determined. Um, but are they willing to buy it? It seems as if yes, they will, they will buy it as of today. Um, again, this is, uh, I want to say this is recent. I think as two years ago or so, we were still not sure. We were not sure. But as of today, they're willing to buy it. And if we package it right, and this is, uh, this is the point that, um, that I'd like to bring up, I think Christian Continental very much agree and many OEMs agree. If we package, package the whole um, system correctly, in other words, that's why we're using near production or production sensors, it's very important to us, then we'll be able to hopefully offer something that, that people will think, well, it's not too much more out of my pocket, so yes, I'll, I'll go ahead and get it. Um, I also want to tap into the fact that we've talked about safety so far as one of the benefits. There are, and then we've talked talked about also mobility for elderly and, and possibly disabled. There's also two other benefits: the environmental factors. For example, traffic sure. congestion could be eliminated or could be reduced. Mm -hmm. And then there's the there's just the traditional quality of life improvement of life, mm -hmm. and that's another thing that um, for at least at Audi we really try to promote. You know, that's a great point, what you make about uh, reducing congestion, because there is a way of dramatically improving fuel economy and dramatically reducing emissions without doing anything else to the car. But that, that can only happen if majority or all of the cars are automated. <laughs> if, we have, if we have humans still driving erratically and we still have um, least optimized um, traffic flow, it's not, we're not going to really get the um, environmental benefit as much as if most of the cars or all the cars are automated. And, and Christian, let me come back to you. What do you think the public would pay for this kind of technology? Has Continental looked into <laughs> that or in your discussions with other automakers? Can you give us at least a ballpark direction? Uh, unfortunately, I cannot give you a number because the number is not really existing. Uh, it's difficult to judge. Uh, I know that there are people out there that would spend quite some money depending on what they're doing on a daily basis. Uh, especially if you think about people that are uh, traveling a lot for business, especially in the car, traffic jam again, how much time they are losing that they could, in theory, utilize for doing emails or stuff like this. Um, and not that we're recommending doing that during driving. I'm just saying if the car is equipped with technology to protect the driver in the situation, it might be possible. 
But uh, we know people are willing to pay, but again, it comes back to what Amy was saying. It's a question of packaging too, um, because, and that's why most in the automotive industry you can see when we're trying to approach it, we're really trying to utilize what is already on the car, what is mostly hidden on the car, because we know there are cars out there that are doing automated driving, autonomous driving. Uh, I wouldn't call them uh, Frankenstein vehicles, but they look uh, a little bit different, let's say. They're, they're very obvious automated driving cars. And that is definitely nothing we would envision for production. But uh, with the approach that the automotive industry currently is doing, I think we're getting towards this. We are using, again, I can just repeat myself, uh, more and more cars getting technology like adaptive cruise control with radar in the front, camera for collision warning or lane departure warning, blind spot for the side. Now, if you think about uh, rear collision warnings uh, systems that have potentially radars in the back as well, or some other kind of sensors, you're already getting to your 360 degree surround viewing at the end. And that's what we're trying to attack because only that, from our perspective, is the way to make it feasible. And uh, yeah, there may be different opinions out which time frame we are talking about, but personally we think it's not that far away when you're thinking at the step-by-step -step approach. Mm -hmm. I was going to add to that in, in a different way of thinking about it. If you, if, if you would have gone to a consumer, um, and Apple would have gone to a consumer when they invented this thing called the smartphone, right? Everybody's paradigm was, it's a phone, it's a phone. And they were thinking, no, it's not a phone. It is, in fact, I think 10% of usage of, a, of an Apple phone is actually calling somebody. It's a, so you ha it's very difficult, at least now, to figure out what a consumer might pay for because they don't really fully understand what we're even talking about. And, and, and as Christian said, some of the vehicles out there really are not the vehicles that these are going to be in the future. And I would argue, this is my own personal view, that there's going to be an enormous differentiation in terms of product. And the price elasticity of demand as it relates to this will be based upon who enters the market, how great their products are. And you'll see, similarly to today's market, people will pay different prices for different vehicles, no, no different than today. And we could see some very expensive uh, self-driving cars, and we could also probably see very inexpensive ones, depending on their particular usage, at least in, in my point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, one point I would like to add, because you, you had a very strong point saying uh, a phone is not a phone anymore. It's changing. It's a computer, basically, today. And we see a similar trend in the automotive industry. Um, we really see kind of that we are at the edge of a change uh, right. of the automobile itself, because before, it's kind of the car was changing the world. Yeah, It was mobility. That's what it was. But now it seems a little bit that the world is changing the car because more and more of this connectivity uh, interaction is coming out into the car. And we have to deal with that. And one of the answers is automated driving. Mm -hmm. Annie, um, walk us through your, your scenario or Audi and uh, the ERL's uh, uh, scenario. We, we've talked about this coming step by step. What are some of the steps that you see coming? Um, so I can talk on behalf of Audi specifically as because of what we did at CES, the electronics, um, the consumer electronics show in Las Vegas this last January. Um, as Christian mentioned earlier, safety is a big, a big, um, big driving factor for Continental. Um, for Audi, we, of course, we consider safety has to be a fundamental basis. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we consider um, we have this model that we like to use, which is you drive when you want to and when you don't want to drive, you don't have to. And that's in traffic jams and in parking scenarios. And those are the two scenarios that we've um, focused on as, as a comp company, as a brand at Audi. And um, for example, we demonstrated at CES that there was a, there was a traffic jam mode, dri piloted driving. We call this piloted driving um, in traffic jam. We also demonstrated three parking scenarios where if one, you, you 
press a button on a smartphone and your car can park itself so you're out of the car and you press a button on a smartphone from outside the car and the car will drive into your home garage, for example, if you have a really tight spot and it'll also pull itself out of its home garage spot. And you can also do that in perpendicular parking spots in public parking lots. And then we so, Just so the audience is with us mm -hmm. on this. The car will drive into a parking lot, go look for a parking spot, and go park itself. That's the fourth demonstration oh, okay. that we did in the third parking scenario that we um, demonstrated. That one is the far future, or let's say within the next 10 years concept that we showed, because that one will require a lot more than just a smartphone and communication with the car and, and then onboard sensors. The one that we um, showed, which is what you're describing on where the car parks itself in the whole parking structure, that one will require some either some infrastructure sensors or if we only use onboard sensors then we will require cooperation with the parking um, structure managers or owners so um, so we are taking it as again a step-by-step -step approach like like christian says and we're using slow speed scenarios that's really important this this means that liability um, issues can be resolved a lot I guess a lot more less pro will be a lot less problematic to, to deal with liability issues. It means that um, we're being safer because it's low speed. It means that we have a good test bed in a way because at low speeds, if anything happens, we can then learn from that. But it's not as detrimental if anything happens, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's how we approach it. We approach it with one: we want to give uh, really attractive products. In other words, you don't have to drive when you don't want to. But at the same time, we want to do it responsibly. And that's why we chose low speeds and scenarios where we can test it um, in a good, I guess, in a very responsible, good way. Christian, do you see that, uh, the, how those steps will get us to one day down the road, fully autonomous cars? We see it very similar, obviously, because we're working with uh, most of the OEMs in certain ways in this area. So we can definitely say that the industry is working this step-by-step -step approach. There's no question about it. Parking maneuvers are the first approach. Um, it's kind of a transition uh, because uh, you can say at the end of the day, we already have automated driving today in production with some cars that park themselves. Not as sophisticated as uh, VW Audi is showing it uh, or has shown it in Las Vegas, but uh, there are cars out there currently available that can park themselves in parallel situations, for example. So that was the first approach, very slow speed. Now you're going a little bit step further. That's, uh, for example, what Audi was showing uh, in a parking structure, still fairly slow. Next one we see is kind of the traffic jam scenario. I still envision, I have to say, because uh, people sometimes uh, miss this part, I envision that the traffic jam scenario will be most likely only on highways. I'm not envisioning that immediately in the city. The reason for that is very simple, because the environment in the city is much more complex. You have pedestrians, you have bicycles, you have dogs, you have a lot of uh, right. environmental objects, let's say, it in around there, that is, is a bigger challenge for the system. So I envision that on the highways. But then, most likely, step by step, we will approach different environments, like cities. Maybe first we stay on the highway, drive a little bit fast on the highway, have uh, uh, systems that are able, as an example, to drive by themselves in commuter lanes, maybe in separate lanes. Um, so all this part is part of a strategy that, at the end of the day, will end up in autonomous driving, yes. Mm -hmm. Gary, let's pretend for a moment that Continental and Audi is not at the table. Uh, you, you've talked to everybody in this in this field right now. Which of the car companies do you think is out in the lead on this? Well, that's a difficult question because they're all my great clients. So, <laughs> <laughs> as a good politician, I won't answer that. Other than to say the following, though, I think uh, I will say this: is that I think there could be new entrants 
that aren't your traditional. Like which, Google. Like and we know that Google's very well down the road right. in this technology. And, and, and I think that's another way to think about this. And Christian did a great job of articulating a step-by-step approach. And I think as part of our white paper, we talked to the, to the left coast. <coughs> And um, some of the conversations were quite amazing, and, and many of these companies want to change the world and have changed the world. So they actually believe more in, a, I'll call it a revolutionary, not a step-by-step approach, that they get, get to a fully autonomous vehicle much faster than more of a step-by-step Sure, approach. Google's talking 2017, 2018. Right, and, I, and we've heard you know, rumor mills of other companies that might enter this market that are non, your, your non-traditional automotive companies. So I just throw that out there. And it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. Obviously, others around the world will probably look at it. But this is a terrific area in, in great development in the U.S. where we could be world leaders in this. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the OEMs that are first. It may be, but there could be others. And that's maybe one, one point I would like to mention because uh, we already mentioned companies like Google. Um, I, I personally really see that as a very friendly competition. And I think uh, sometimes it's, it's very important for the automotive industry too that somebody from the outside is trying something different. Right. Uh, um, because long term, I envision that we all meet somewhere in the middle uh, with, a, with a very good, exciting product. And that's why, from my perspective, because there's always a little bit of feeling that there is a, is a competition, what I see there is, but I see it really as a friendly competition. I think we each other, companies like Google, like the automotive OEMs, like the suppliers, I think at the end of the day, we're just getting our, ourselves to the next level. What is, at the end of the day, a win situation for the end consumer? Yeah, I see this as... Uh totally transformative technology. In fact, I, I believe the car will now change society as much as it did 100 years ago. Yeah, and I want to add to Christian's point about the fact that it is friendly competition, but at the, and the, re, the reason why we say it's friendly competition, because at the same time, even though we're competing in terms of who's going to make the most advanced te- technical development, we are also working together for non-technical issues. For example, trying to resolve liability issues. Um, If everyone agrees in the industry that we'll have event data recorders, for example, as one possible solutions, then we really can investigate who who was really liable if an occurrence were to to happen. That's something that we all have to agree with uh, as OEMs, as suppliers, as as non-OEM traditional automotive. We all have to agree and we work together in terms of regulations (laughs) and policy and so, it's friendly competition because we also have to work together at the same time. I, I think that's a great point that you're making is that really more of the issues now are not technical. They're legislative and uh, legal ones. But that's going to be for another show. This has been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank all of you for having come in. Uh, Gary Silberg, Kristen Schumacher, Annie Lean, terrific conversation. And I want to thank all of you for having tuned into AutoLine this week. Auto Line This Week is underwritten in part by and endurance. We're here to see which hybrid has the best MPG. That's the essence of a hybrid soul. But is there more to it? 
the hybrid game MPG Challenge.